0: Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week I spoke with Emmanuel Emessen, a data scientist and an ML engineer currently based at Stripe. Emmanuel also wrote an excellent O'Reilly book called Building Machine Learning Powered Applications, a book I find myself often returning to for inspiration, and that I was pleased to get the chance to reread in preparation for our discussion. Emmanuel has previously worked at Insight Data Science, where he was involved in mentoring and guiding dozens of data scientists who were working on building their ML portfolio projects. He brings a wealth of experience to the table, and I'm really excited to present our conversation to you.
1: I'm Emmanuel. I I guess going all the way back, I have a background in terms of what I studied. I studied in France, and I got um graduate degrees in uh, computer science um artificial intelligence research and also um uh, management which is clearly the odd one out but i was interested in how to concretely apply these uh principles then moved to the bay area and basically worked as a data scientist for a bit for a startup and then uh for Zipcar, mostly on kind of um think uh Geolocation-related problems, uh, predicting pockets of demand uh, in various places, uh, and then uh, for a while, I actually taught machine learning at a uh, kind of uh, a boot camp, a professional education program called Insight, uh, which was project-based learning. So I would I would help uh, fellows go through machine learning projects so they could showcase these projects to uh, to get jobs. After doing that for a while, uh, and and kind of overseeing hundreds of projects through that I developed very strong opinions about what you should and shouldn't do in machine learning well based on that and, and and my work as a data scientist before and so I wrote a book for O'Reilly called Building Machine Learning Powered Applications about like tips and and general best practices that I felt weren't present in in the material that I was reading or, or common pitfalls I was seeing um, and and you know after teaching and writing I really missed actually doing the thing and so then I uh, since then I've moved on to to stripe. Where I work uh, as an ml engineer on the um, the radar uh, team so that there's a fraud detection team uh, for transaction fraud specifically. and so I work on um, kind of shipping new models but also making uh, our uh, ops better for shipping shipping and refreshing existing models um, and and kind of operationalizing models more generally.
0: Okay, so you've had these experiences that kind of, lots of different angles of the process i guess you could say um yeah maybe a good place to start perhaps is some of the experiences that you had while you were working at insight and then made their way into the book i guess maybe before that i often wonder with kind of portfolio projects or, or kind of single use projects whether they're almost whether they're a good place to to learn kind of production because either they don't last long enough or, or perhaps then they're not at scale or all of these kinds of things. Do you have a a thought on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a real concern for, for, uh, portfolio projects. It's, it's kind of unfortunate because on one hand, you know, you have, um, a lot of qualified and interested candidates that say, you know, I want to get my hands dirty, uh, like I. You know, I'm going to build a, a ML project, maybe build a model to predict this or that based on this data set. On the other hand, you have hiring committees that say, well, this is this is nice and, and certainly shows enthusiasm and willingness to learn, but but it, it doesn't translate really well to what your day-to-day would be like at a company doing machine learning, uh, which, which I think is unfortunate and, and wasn't always as true. Now, it's definitely more true that because of the availability of resources like Kaggle and, and like other things, you know, like the signal of somebody that's like, Hey, I did some cool ML on this one data set is much lower because it's kind of standardized. Um, That was a bit of an issue with, with, or a challenge, certainly with the work that we did at insight, but luckily we had a pretty tight loop with companies that were hiring. And so actually we could steer projects, you know, uh, maybe the classic yeah like Kaggle kind of uh, oh I did like some some surface level ml on the data set wasn't interesting but you know we would ask companies you know like oh what are you looking for and they'd say like well you know for us let's say on the data science side you know we actually want people that have really good uh, statistical inference skills we want people that are able to kind of you know determine uh, how you would go about uh, designing a, a test and making sure that it's robust making make sure it has sufficient power. And it's like, okay, well, that's something that you could do a project around, you know, you, you, even if you don't have kind of scale or, or, or a company's data or on the, ML engineering side, you know, it might be, well, we're looking at ways to make distributed training easier or ways to kind of do some parts of model serialization and model serving, uh, more robust and more reliable. And so, uh, what we ended up doing is kind of guiding a lot more projects away from the simple, you know, build a ML model on XYZ to okay, can we do a deeper dive on you know some very niche part Something. and and understand that better. Which, you know, I think if if you're listening to this and you're trying to uh, get a job in machine learning and maybe you're you're new, is 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 a good approach trying to figure out what the company you apply for cares a lot about and just diving deep on that specifically.
0: Do you run the risk? Then, I mean, something that your book stresses quite a lot. I think even maybe maybe the first part of it is it's all about like end to end, right? Do you do you run the risk that you miss the end to end part? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, you know, I think you would conduct a kind of portfolio project slightly differently from a uh, from a, from a project uh, at a company where where mm-hmm. maybe like. The uh, business result is obviously kind of what matters when you're working at a a company, Um, when you're working on your portfolio, sometimes it can be slightly different. Uh, Sometimes you don't have kind of a a concrete, you know, like I drove this much revenue by doing this model because you were just doing something on your own. Um, But that being said, I think that that approach is still applicable Uh, essentially, you know, ML, Especially uh, is very rabbit hole-y, All aspects of it are, and so even if you choose a smaller chunk of it, you know, there's there's a lot of value to saying, okay, well, for this small chunk, say, you know, I'm going to um, I'm going to look at quantization of weights and trying to see, you know, how how much I can quantize the weights of a neural network while preserving, you know, a given level of accuracy. Because like, okay, well, you know, the real objective is. Uh, to benchmark these quantization methods, so the first thing I should do is kind of like define an experimental loop, whereby I can kind of do whatever I want on the experimental side, and then have a very precise and concrete way of measuring it and reporting results. And then once you have that whole scaffolding built, then you can iterate really quickly. And so it's really like a smaller version of the scaffolding that you'd have if you were doing the whole process of ML. Uh, but I think that's useful nonetheless, and something that that is a common failure mode is, is not doing that.
0: When you're thinking of ml in production do you see or think that there are some universals there like maybe it's a question i'm asking about definitions here what do you think of when you think of ml in production is there a specific like user or use case or persona or group of people that come to mind i think it's quite
1: wide i don't think there's there's definitely clustering you could do but i think you know ml in production kind of has has a, has, yeah, a wide range of, of versions from you know one version of in production is certainly maybe the shiny like your google search and so you have you know models that are retrained you know maybe hourly or, or every few hours that they're they're um running on custom hardware is because hardware because they're very expensive models uh you know they have insane latency requirements where whereby you know they must run in the span of a search and so, you know, you have this kind of like very intense combination of like engineering and infrastructure and CICD and MLOps and all that stuff. You know, you, you have other applications where maybe, um, you know, I'm not familiar with their, with their stack, but I'd imagine something like Grammarly, you know, is, okay, I, I, I type something and then maybe that gets sent like asynchronously to a process that can be like a little bit more loosely constrained in terms of infrastructure and kind of like does its inference and it comes back to me because I don't. Care if my grammarly correction comes like immediately. I'm okay to wait a little bit. Um, and then you have you know things that are entirely offline. Like you might you might have something that does lead prediction for you, where you know you're a sales organization and it's it's a model to tell you who you should call first. And that can run you know on one of the devs machine at night. You know uh, <laughs> kind of thing. So so. I would say all of those are ML in production and, and they're only a small part of, of everything you can encompass. You know, we haven't even touched on like researchy things. Like maybe you're doing reinforcement learning for um, like rocket fuel adjustments, which was one of the projects that, that we did at Insight. Or maybe you're doing, you know, some like crazy computer vision pipelines that are running on phones or on Raspberry Pis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's hard to define uh, it uniquely because I think like just these examples have such different profiles. There's best practices that I think apply almost universally,
0: uh, but the space is is super wide, which is really... I guess we'll come to the best practices, but does this diversity make it a little bit difficult sometimes to either guide people or, or even teach it? I recently had spent spend a while getting to know these MLOps maturity models that Google and Microsoft put out, I think, in early 2020. And I think the way that they were pitched or the way that they were proposed is kind of, these are universal best practices that everyone works their way towards. And they go from you know level zero to level four and different stages along the way. As I was reading through them, I didn't, I think maybe if you're Google, that's a good way of conceptualizing it but for more or less anyone else that didn't find them particularly useful and didn't really offer any kind of pathway. So yeah, is that a risk then? That's, that's funny. I I like the framing of those
1: maturity guidelines as, you know, there are multiple stages of, of MLOps maturity. And of course the final and best stage is, you know, be <laughs> Google or Microsoft. Right? <laughs> right. Um if you're not there, clearly you're at a at a you know far removed stage on the evolutionary pipeline. That's fun. That's that's a fun way to present it. Well I, I think, you know, it's kind of the same argument as um like the the just the dev story or, or the infra story that you have, you know, at those large companies. You you heard these arguments, I think, uh, for a while in the broader engineering community of, you know, you're not Google, you, you know, your 12th your person startup does not need, you know, spanner or some kind of ludicrous piece of infrastructure, you know, for, for a while, when you're a small startup, you can have, you know, like a local SQLite database and just do just fine, you know, you can have, you can get away with very simple things. And in fact, architecting complex things is, is a waste of time. I think that that's very true in ML, where to give you an example, one of the big failure modes I would say, again, and this is less true when you have the infrastructure of Google, but let's say if, if you're a normal, your, your average company, um, is that you will spend a lot of time both building infrastructure and building product with the assumption that your machine learning will work out. Uh, instead of spending all of your first times with a project de risking the machine learning, you know, and saying, like, well, I don't know, we, we thought that we could predict this outcome that we want to build a whole, uh, product around but you know we spend two months on it as data scientists and we can't figure out a model that works uh to our given point so so let's not even start building our our cool you know uh, kubernetes cluster for for modeling because we won't get we won't need it
0: right yeah you were helping out supervising not sure exactly what the right word is there for for various projects at, at insight and you saw i guess you saw a in the end, probably like success, hopefully, but presumably there were some like failure modes as well. Maybe let's start with the failures. Like, what were the kinds of things that you commonly saw people struggling with or getting wrong? Or yeah,
1: yeah, there is yeah, there are definitely quite a few. I well, and they coalesce pretty pretty neatly, I think. Um, one thing that's nice about observing failure modes as a note, I'll say, is that. Um, they usually neatly give you solutions um so i'm a pessimist by nature but that's that's why i I like to focus on what goes wrong so you know you you get customer tickets and you want to say this customer ticket about that kind of issue or this kind of issue and you want to train a model um it is likely that you know if you were to to put money on which model would work best uh it'll probably be a pretty complicated model you know you probably uh like some new transformer architecture would likely beat up some per models um however what often happens if you're doing this a lot of these projects that we would do were in partnership with with real companies and so we'd have kind of real data and if you're working with real data uh in any capacity like the first thing you'll learn after a while is that it's shocking how uh, bad it is you know everything about real data is broken all of the assumptions that you have you know you get this id column you're like well surely you know, the IDs are all integers or whatever. It's like, nope, there's a string in there. Who knows why, you know, like this is from some migration a while ago, you know, and any assumption that you have is, is wrong. And so what would commonly happen is, you know, you take this data, you kind of don't think about it too much. You throw a super powerful model at it and you get something ridiculous. Like, you know, you get hundred percent accuracy. Your model is perfect. Um, and in all cases, it means that y- your, your data was leaking the label somehow. You know, like there, there was a label column that you removed because you're smart, but then there was also a column that was, you know, like, uh, like support ticket comment or something that was like the, the a human uh, reviewer said, oh, this looks like a ticket about this and you fed that to your model or whatever. And so, you know, you get 100% accuracy. And then uh, the, the next thing we'd always do is we'd say like, oh, let's test this model out. Like, I'm going to write a support ticket. And then the model was, was horrible. It would never work. Um, that becomes a lot less of an issue. If you start with, with simple models, which is why I emphasize that a lot in the book, because one, they're usually not that great. So it's rare that, you know, even if you're leaking a lot, like you get to that perfect performance. Um, Mm -hmm. and two, you can more easily see like, okay, well, my model is performing this way. Like, let's now look at what it's doing and identify issues with your data. Um, So I'd say like, that's one pitfall is over engineering. The other big one that's, that's related is not looking at the data. Uh, So this, I had this joke that, you know, I stole from someone definitely, uh, but you know, it's, it's called uh, data science, not ML science. I feel like this is less true now that we have ML engineers. Um, But anyways, the point being that like a lot of your work should be looking at the data. So initially looking at the data to make assumptions and say like, is this a problem we can solve? What are the features we're going to use? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but even as you're iterating on your model, usually looking at data is the most informative thing you can do because you train your model, it gets some level of performance. And then, you know, you have to ask yourself if that level of performance is not good enough, what do I do? And usually error analysis is something that is extremely useful, you know, um, and and I wish was, was more commonly supported. Uh, we were talking, I think, before we started recording about, like, Great resources like fast.ai. They have an awesome kind of um, uh, uh, part of their library, I remember, where it's like, here, take a look at all of the images that you know, like your classifier completely got wrong. wrong." Yeah. Yeah. Or the ones that are really close to decision boundary. That's usually super useful because that's when you see, ah, of course, you know, uh, this is the kind of error my classifier is doing. And usually you rectify it by changing your data. Um, I feel like I've been talking for a bit. I'll just say that the last one is uh, defining your metrics well. This is, Maybe this is way more important in industry and less so in, in maybe side projects, but still I think is is a good thing to practice um, but defining you know if if I gave you a machine learning model right now, what performance profile would it have to have for you to put it in production and for it to be useful and defining that ahead of time because if you don't you'll have the sunk cost fallacy like no my model is good
0: enough, even though it's way under what it should be to be useful and does that encompass kind of the whole use case stuff that you know it needs to be fast or small or it needs to be deployed on the edge is that part of it or are you talking about something else yeah i, I think my first the first thing to usually look at is is its performance
1: profile because usually you can i mean it depends right if if, yeah, if you're constrained and you're like <laughs> you're gonna deploy it on an arduino it severely limits right. what you can do so maybe maybe one way to think about that is that it's a restriction rather on kind of the model class and the the side of the size of the feature set you can use you know that you'd have to reduce but more generally i think it's it's a good idea to say well i'm going to do this to you know rank the 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 top 3 support categories that i think this ticket will be in to keep in with our example and then it's like well if if you have a system of support agents and you're going to show them these top 3 support categories and they have to pick from one like how often does the correct category have to be in it for it to be useful? Presumably, if the correct category is in it, let's say less than 50% of the time, then they'll just learn to ignore your display. and So your model is useless. Mm-hmm. And So you say like, okay, well, our top three accuracy needs to be at least 50%, probably more, you know, let's say like 70%. So in 70% of the cases, our model should, in its top three predictions predict the correct category or it's an on-starter. And that's useful for, for backtesting if you have that ahead of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And in terms of encouraging encouraging the right approach versus some of these things where people get ahead of themselves or they don't spend the time looking at the data, what have you found are the, for those of us who aren't lucky enough necessarily to work with you and to, to have you nudging them in the right direction, is it a question of just knowing what these best practices are? Should the technology and the, the, the way that the frameworks work also be pushing you in the right direction? Um Is it just all of the above Um. yeah i mean i think this is certainly
1: uh uh, a lesson that most practitioners learn the hard way i feel like if you know you you talk to what's kind of like grizzled data scientists terminal engineers and they say like yep you know you spend my whole time looking at the data because that's what you're doing Mm -hmm. every time i haven't done that you know it bit me so now i do that Mm -hmm. uh but but at Insight, it was really nice because we had a program and we could structure it. We could say like the first week you look at your data, you know, the second week you you, you mm-hmm. like build a simple model or that sort of stuff. I think more generally for, to your question though, in in terms of tooling, there's definitely more that we can do on the tooling side. Um, I don't think tooling can always replace best practices. Uh, so I think there's always a mix of kind of you just learning how you should think about the tools and then also, but also the tools kind of giving you the the default good approach, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk of kind of data-based MLS and data-driven machine learning. I think a lot of those tools are pretty promising where in a lot of applications, the model definition code, at least let's talk about kind of going from no model to having a model rather than Mm -hmm. iterating on an existing model. So when you're building the first model. For the vast majority of cases, it's pretty cookie cutter what you're doing. And if you're doing tabular data, you might throw an XGBoost at it. Maybe that'll change in the future. If you're doing, you know, computer vision, you're going to transfer learn from something, if you're doing text, you're going to transfer learn from something else. They're like pretty well understood. And not that they always give you the best performance, but do at least a reasonable baseline. And so that part, I feel like for a while, we spent a lot of time building tools for that, but now we've kind of understood that. The tooling is really useful for those things. Once you get into this sort of like end to end plus one iteration cycle, you know, you've worked on your ad model for years, then it gets really useful, but initially not as much. Um, since what matters so much is looking at your data set, iterating on your data set, like adding examples, removing examples, adding features, I think having more tools that do that would be really useful. To be honest with you, I haven't looked at the, at the uh, tooling landscape in a bit, uh, but you know, it, there used to be, I think I call it out in the, in the book, there used to be like a, a thing called Google Facet, which was really cool. It was like a kind of like data visualization tool for tabular data sets that allowed you to like kind of easily split by a bunch of interesting um, uh, features and kind of use your model classifier or, or your predictor in general to, to kind of uh, look at your data landscape. Um, in the book, I, I, I kind of introduced some visualization techniques that I use that I feel like uh i would love for actual professionals to do better than me and make available to me you know so like you can you can um do umap or t sne you know some some dimensionally reduction to look at your features and then Mm -hmm. uh color them in various ways sort of like saying like okay these are all the ones that my model got wrong or these are all the ones that my model you know that are on the decision boundary uh that sort of stuff i think those are like it's it's kind of wild to me that i can invoke you know a new machine learning model and like four lines of code with with work, but if i want to write a visualization it takes me an afternoon um i i wish there there were more tools and if there are please tell me what they are so i can immediately start using it uh but yeah
0: and in that same universe are i guess people talk about it less these days but is auto ml in in that same thing it's, it feels like maybe a, a lazy way to the same destination yeah AutoML is so interesting. I
1: used to be uh, such a, a bear on AutoML. It's just the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, now I think I think it's it has a, a UI UX problem. I think it is true that for many machine learning problems, you can probably, if I have again, let's say let's say I have done my work on the data set, I could probably then use some AutoML solution to get a reasonable model. And it, it, it I think for again especially for sort of like something where I just need one model and it's probably not something I'm going to iterate on, but I need to like add some ML to a part of my site. This seems like a useful thing, Mm -hmm. but I think it still has the UI UX problem of the auto ML emphasis should be around, you know, these visualization tools that I was talking about where like, you know, if I was to do an auto ML startup, it'd be something around like you come with your, with your data and then like it does its auto ML and then it does something intelligent to show you not only a visualization, but ideally some heuristics saying like, Hey, we think, that, you know, you have eight classes in this, like, image classifier, and right. we keep getting, like, class seven and eight confused. Uh, we think that you, you you might, you know, benefit from uploading more images of, like, class seven, eight, in particular ones where there's a lot of blue in the image. Because those are the right. ones that we get really wrong. Uh, like, that would be, the, if, if
0: you had Brilliant. that UX, yeah. I think that, that would be extremely strong. Right. Yeah. I, I, that. I mean, I, I've never used it that somehow in my mind is how how it works but i guess not
1: i haven't touched on 5 pipelines in a bit the last time i tried some of the major cloud providers uh it was not that it was kind of like upload two or three folders you know like train test split images and then it just like spits out it's like there you go Something. You know, 0.7 accuracy <laughs> or whatever like here's your model and you're like okay it was yeah i've missed that that I think even if you do AutoML, like the, still the core part is the inter- like the the feedback right. loop kind of as, you, as yeah. you, and they didn't have any support for that. Maybe it's much better now.
0: Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, what we've been talking about is kind of one piece of the bigger like production yeah. thing, and there, yeah. like the the more you move out of the model building metropolis, like then you really are <laughs> a little bit in the wild west. Like you're. Yeah like whether in terms of tooling or best practices or whatever, it does seem that particularly for people coming new into it, and I speak from experience here, like it is, um, yeah, I I wouldn't say that we have as much kind of cookie cutter, either tooling or all sorts of things uh, in that space.
1: Yeah. So I would say the the, the way I I was thinking about it is that there were kind of three things that were not as cookie cutter. So I would say, two we've kind of touched on already which is you know one is what is the logic and 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 like the set of best practices by which or, or with which you you iterate on models you know once you're like how a lot of the resources were around you know you have a problem do you do this you get a model but then it's like okay but then what uh so that that was one part where it was, it was kind of like very unclear um uh the second part was how do you translate kind of what you're trying to do as, as a business or as a project to a model and that was also pretty unclear where you know there was sort of like do text classification with whatever but you know oftentimes your, your product needs are, are much more vague you know where you're like oh well it'd be kind of nice you know when like people type a search for us to like autocomplete it in this way and it's like okay like what's autocomplete is that you know like a language model is that classification is that that was also very vague um and then the third one is exactly what you said like Once you, you know, like you do like let's say the ML part, there's a cornucopia of like systems around it. And like which ones are necessary, what do you need to deploy your first model? What's like what really matters? What are the best practices for kind of like the ops and the and the CI C D? And I think in the book, I focused a lot more on the first and the second because that's what I had more experience with. And then I felt like the third one was even more of the Wild West than the rest. And that was a big reason for me to join Stripe because I wanted to basically grow and learn on here's like, you know, a very large company that's doing ML with extremely rigorous engineering constraints. Uh let's try to see how they do it, how we can contribute to it, um, and and what we can learn because it, it did and I think still does feel like the Wild West and like there are no best practices for what you do around your models. Only kind of like, this is what we do and this is, you know, the mistakes we've done. Um so I think we're still early on in that phase.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like an unsolved problem in 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 all sorts of ways or that's the opportunity as well on the other side of that so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you do it then at stripe where, where would you situate yourself on that spectrum of single person to google or, or whatever or in terms of how models get made like are there small teams or is it bigger efforts or yeah yeah we're lucky enough that
1: we're at a size where we have kind of infrastructure teams that expose really useful services to us um, which I think is, you know, not really the case when you're at a small startup stage. And so what I mean by that is, you know, there are compute teams that expose useful compute primitives, whether that's, you know, uh, essentially like a wrapper around some um, cloud instance, or you know, whether it's uh, I just want this computation to happen, like kind of make it happen for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly for uh model serving and feature stores we have teams that kind of work on that and so we have you know we're, we're able to say uh you know I, i've trained this model um i now want to be able to call it you know uh, through an api call in 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 production and and that just kind of automatically happens which is that's say really nice um similarly uh for feature store we kind of like define them once offline and then we have both offline regular Uh, batch jobs and compute them and then you know online um we can access them with our models i think that puts us pretty pretty squarely ahead of uh the sort of like startup that doesn't have that infra however you know i'm sure if you found uh, a snarky google engineer they say like oh you know, this is this was the state of things at Google twelve years ago. You know, now, right. uh, you know, we have sixteen layers of automation around this. You know, we don't even have humans working at Google anymore. Right. Uh, but so, you know, somewhere in between, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the way this ends up looking like is um, a a lot of the the remaining work is around. Uh, you still have the kind of data munging jobs like even if you have really good tools the you know product teams or the teams that own the model still end up having to spend a lot of time kind of carefully thinking about okay there's this upstream data uh like i guess you know uh which which features do we want which ones will we have at the moment where the model runs okay we'll have these features so let's like connect to all these um upstream providers kind of do our own data filtering you know kind of think like ETL slash feature generation uh, logic, um, write that then, you know, uh, write our like training logic our evaluation logic. And then obviously, um, kind of our, our uh, shipping pipeline is I guess what I'll call it so sort serve of like everything that goes after when you've trained an evaluated model, it looks pretty good. There's actually quite a few steps, especially if you're uh, in a critical application between you know the model's AUC or whatever. This offline to yes, we're ready. This model, let's go. Um, and then and then post launch monitoring. So all of these have kind of a bunch of tools and steps, and sometimes automated, sometimes not automated steps.
0: And does a product team work end to end?
1: Yeah. the The idea is that at least for the team I'm on, this might be different on other teams, but I, I think it's pretty generalizable that uh you and you own the pipeline end to end uh but you know uh hopefully you, you you rely on sort of like very nice abstractions so that right you know even though we own the pipeline end to end we have a team you know that that makes our batch computation primitives you know they're both like they're more efficient they're faster uh and they give us like tools uh and obviously they like sit below not only our team but a bunch of other teams and so You own it end to end, but you get to be on the shoulder of giants if that makes sense, and and use kind of uh, higher level primitives than if you were to like write your own, you know, Airflow logic and write your own feature store and all that stuff. That would not be tenable,
0: right? Yeah, because there is this idea of the I guess kind of full stack data scientist, which yeah, I'm not, I'm sure those people do exist, and definitely seems like you're you're relying on like a lot of support from other, like you were saying, with the, the infrastructure and, and so on, not necessarily needing to worry about that as much. But I imagine, yeah, the the lower you go in terms of resources and availability of expertise and teams and so on, is the more you're going to be confronted with with all of that. I'm curious, what are the pain points that that you still experience in terms of working end to end, even with all of that support?
1: There's a few. Um,
0: one that I think is
1: true, no matter where you are in the ML, you know, uh, unless you, you reach, I guess, like, uh, whatever level Microsoft and Google define as like Nirvana of ML Ops is, uh, four, okay. If you reach level four, maybe that's not a problem, but reproducibility, I think is a big one. Mm -hmm. So the idea that I think we're slowly getting there as an industry, but you know, it kind of used to be that this ML model is kind of this artifact that's, uh, you know, it's like, well, Um, you know, let's see. Uh Anna trained this model uh three years ago. We think it was SK uh you know V0.8. Uh at that point that column was different. It meant this, now it has three new values. Uh but you know it's been working in production, so it's kind of nice. And then you come to the point where it's like, well, let's retrain the model. It's like this is like it's anarchy. You know, you're basically like starting over from scratch because it's horrible. Um and I think like no matter how much tooling you have it it still is pretty hard to have everything from uh you know have the let's call it like some people call it like data lineage but everything from like you're reliably producing this data you're uh reliably training a model on the same subset of data you're evaluating this model in a consistent way and then you're consistently deciding whether to ship it or not. And then once it's shipped, you're also consistently judging it, you know, saying like would, whichever kind of monitoring system you have saying like, Hey, hold on. Like, this is not performing well, that is still something that even if you have a lot of primitives to build up on, like we do, a lot of this is on you as the owning team, right? Like no matter, like the tools can help to a certain extent. And, and, you know, I'm sure as an industry, we can build more tools, but at the end of the day, you are still kind of the owner of your own destiny. And you're the one that has to say like, no, this is how, I define how this model is trained, how this data is generated. And some of this stuff is fuzzy, you know, and so it's hard. So like, I think especially for model performance, it can be challenging if some part of it is an A-B test or some part of it is some, you know, to like, kind of like uh, define fully offline how you do that. Um, so that if the person that last released a model quits, you don't, you know, just stuck
0: with their model forever. Um, so I think that's, a, that's still a big issue that remains. hmm and yeah, I work in the tool building side of things, so maybe I'm more aware of it. But it feels like reproducibility is even harder, given the pace of change of tools and of just learning and and, and so on within all, all sorts of different parts of, of this. Yeah,
1: I think that's I think that's right, and I think there's a lot of um a lot of the challenge with. ML, and I'm not saying anything new here, I guess, but, you know, is that it's kind of non-deterministic. And so one of the hard parts is um, let's say that you have multiple models that are, you know, running in the same environment. So the reason I say this is let's imagine that they're all using the same library version. And then, you know, there's one one model really wants to use this new feature that only exists at like TensorFlow 2.8 or whatever. Um, and currently you're at 2.4. I'm just making numbers up. Uh, because kind of how quickly these tool changes, it's very possible that once you do your migration, the other two models will maybe perform worse or perform differently. And there's not great, again, I I think there's not great tools to evaluate that and say like, no, this migration is safe, you know, like these models are fine. I think that's something that we've tried to spend more time on. I don't know how much of it is tools, but, you know, saying like, okay, can we automatically say, you know, for the set of configurations, we are happy with this model. In other words, it's hard to say, like it's performing the same. That's like, pretty indeterministic especially especially if like you know the model hasn't been trained in a while so like the data distribution's shifted all that stuff but you know saying like okay we have these criteria for are we happy with this model and then it really unlocks the ability of like other people to change because anything you're tied to they can like be like okay but i performed this change and it seems like these like whatever tests you ran uh, or you wrote still are in the green so we can we can move forward but i think for ml that's really hard and so i don't know that that we've solved that as much as like we have kind of you know some set of, of assumptions where we train a model and like measure it on a few things and say like okay it looks good Uh, but i think it's a huge issue is because the space moves fast and because there's not a kind of yes or no this is breaking or not like with regular code it makes Mm -hmm. iteration and 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 uh, evolution of pipelines hard
0: do you see that as being somehow related to i guess the maturity of the this part of the industry i don't know i'm thinking how you were saying how in particularly is rabbit holy and and there are all of these parts and you know you read your book even and even though it kind of simplifies and boils things down there are still like nine or ten different things that you really need oh, yeah. to like keep your eye on and all of them are huge like chasms of stuff that you could spend your whole life working on just each one one part yep. is that does that have, have something to do with where we are in terms of the as in, do you do you think things will be simpler in the future or will is it just inherently compl- complicated i interpret your question as like is it going to get better are we stuck here forever
1: <laughs> um oh, i don't know that's that's a that's a, an interesting kind of i feel like it's almost a you know forecasting super forecasting question uh, so i i guess I'll, I'll share my hunch which is my hunch is that yes it will get simpler i i have this maybe uh weird comparison uh, sometimes uh, between ML engineers slash data scientists and compiler engineers. Uh, and, you know, it's like at some point early on in the, the history of computing, like knowing a lot about compilers is kind of a very useful skill. Uh, and, and it not that it's not today, but like a generally useful skill. You'd have, you would have to interact with weird compiler issues way more often than you do today. Uh, and, you know, kind of like knowing the ins and out, like knowing you know, whichever standards had recently changed, whichever kind of um, instruction set had been released would be really helpful to be like, oh yeah, of course this bug is because this this or that. Now, you know, most engineers don't know much about uh, compilers and maybe they've studied a bit uh, of it if they took a CS program, but then it's not clear how much they use it on the job. And I think that's largely because best practices have been established and not that the field is stagnant, but, you know, there's kind of, been enough um stability that abstractions have been built on top of it i think it's very likely that the same thing happens for ml where let's say for 95 percent of use cases you really in the future will not have to think about you know not only like how you train your nlp model again like maybe that will be abstracted way for you but also how you kind of evaluate it There'll be some sort of, of kind of like, oh, you have this business problem, you know, this is kind of like a both a good loss function, but also like a good evaluation method. Or what you do is you take, you know, 100 examples from this thing, 200 from this, 300, you compute the score. And as long as that's good, you know, you're, you're good. Uh, and these will mostly, you can imagine that these are mostly like best practices based. But basically most people will do that, not think about it too much and, and live in the happy place. And then uh, just like today, you know, for kind of really gnarly applications or really uh, cutting edge stuff you still need compilation. Uh, yeah. And so, and so you, you'll you just have kind of like, I think a specialization and a, and a narrowing of maybe like how many folks need to really intensely think about gradients. You know, I think like if you ask me, is the proportion of people that think about gradients on a weekly basis going to go up or down, I would say down significantly mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely do. do think a lot maybe because in part, this is me, but just in, also see a lot of people coming into this field from other domains at the moment and just the gap between the promise and the where we are right now feels very large and yeah i mean which which part of the promise well i mean the the promise is that your problems get solved like the problems that you actually care about in your specific domain Um, but you know, I the, yeah. the, the yeah. steps that you have to reach to to get there and do it in a way that is not just solving the problem in terms of not just developing a model, but like having something that, yeah, works end to end and that allows you to, to spot things going wrong and, and and all of this. Like that's a huge, especially for one person on their own, like it's a yeah. huge ask. Yep. If not, yeah, I don't know how, how if, if, even in the realms of possible that is for, for someone like who's coming new into this yeah i think that's i
1: think that's right i i'm so interested and this is why i, I work in that area and the difference between even you know i think a lot of people coming into the field when i was at insight you know, obviously would interview a lot of them like would see these really cool papers or blog posts by high profile research jobs you know your open ai or deep minds and you know it'd be kind of things like at the time it wasn't protein folding but you know you, you had kind of a, a bunch of papers around solving this complicated thing and a lot of them actually what the paper was very impressive papers i want to say you know i am about to I'm about to criticize them a little bit i want to say like the work is actually very impressive impressive but you know a lot of them at the end result as well on this held out set you know we perform better than humans which is amazing um however if you compare that to the work of you know like some of the work that i, don't know, I found really impressive would be you know like i don't know like google's uh autocomplete when it auto-completes your sentences in docs or in mails or like suggests responses. Like the first step of that was, hey, you know, we maybe not beat humans, but got to, like a really good result on a held out set. And then there was like an immense amount of work to like, oh, but now we're gonna make it into a useful product and we have to like do the infra and we have to like, you know, kind of think about like continuous training, think about training data shifts, think about new languages. We also have to think about a whole thing we haven't talked about, which I talk about in one of the chapters in the book, is like quality control. Like in a lot of these uh, these papers, you can afford to, you know, you beat humans and in one of the cases you do something absolutely horrible. Like in your metric, you can't. If one time your email insults you, um, and so yeah, that the ML work is, is again, like the part that's still the wireless, but that's so interesting. And to your point, if it's a large project, infeasible but like just impossible for a single person to do it sort of something that currently requires you know like lifting mountains um right but but yeah and maybe that's that's a big part of the uh the disconnect i found in 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 my discussions with maybe people getting into the field is it's kind of they say like well look we've solved this we've solved that we've solved this and it's like well we've in theory shown that a machine can do as well as a human under certain conditions we're very far from like actually leveraging that solution for for something useful. It's not always the case by the way. Like some papers do, you know, like AlphaGo notably is like, yeah, they also, you know, played a champion and beat them. So but yeah, I think that yeah. a lot of the disconnect comes from that. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I often think about something that Jeremy Howard says in the Fast AI course, which is like deep learning is at least at the moment, a deeply artisanal practice. Yeah. And how getting to really good at it, you need to build that intuition through a lot of practice and Seems sort of like what you're saying around this kind of MLM production is kind of similar, that you really do just have to have hit the wall in a bunch of places and have worked through solving problems in this wider way in a bunch of different configurations to start to develop that intuition, given that we don't have yet have established all of these best practices.
1: Yeah. And that's clearly a sign of, of an early field, right? Unless you believe that, you know, it's like, no. Machine learning is one of the fields that's fundamentally unsolvable and we will forever be kind of, you know, uh, like the magicians, just you know, performing incantations and then just kind of hoping for the best. Uh, I think it's very likely that we start to understand more about like how models perform the way they perform and kind of, you know, if you think about it, like a lot of the way that we train models today, it is getting too much in the negative. All. It's like we we have like these super over parameterized models, and we somehow like take steps towards like the loss function. We kind of you know try to not overfit on the training set, but then sometimes maybe it's good if we have a really large model because we've seen that we have like a double descent phenomena, phenomena that happens sometimes, and like all of it feels very like we have you know like it's like a puzzle piece of a complete picture, and we have you know like three puzzle pieces out of the total four hundred. Um, I think in the future we'll have more, and we'll also have a better understanding of the industrial side of it, and and um, I, my belief is that it won't be artisanal forever, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about, I guess, the technology side of, of uh, MLM production in terms of the non-technology parts, like in terms of how teams work, how to think about these things, uh, how to connect the the technology bit to the business bit, like how does that work? What, what, what's the, what have you found works in, in, in that sense? That was yeah so
1: fascinating. That's that's one of the things I also was surprised that there were not that many books about. I think there's a few more that have come out since since the publication of of Building Machine Learning Power Applications. I'm I'm excited to to read some of them. Uh, But I think that's that's one of the common failure failure modes too, right? Is is at least from my network, you know, product manager has an idea. they pitch it. Uh, everybody thinks it's great. You have a bunch of of sunk costs, and like you never get a working model, or your working model works offline, but then when you ship it, it doesn't work online, or or, or whatever. Um, I think that one thing that I have found to be really useful for these is to be extremely data driven, which which is that's good. Uh, we are a data scientists after all, and so what I mean by that is kind of whichever idea you have, like digging into it until almost until you get to a uh, loss function or a classification metric. So, you know, I had the the example of the the support ticket system, Um, but, you know, you can say like, I'll give you the the fraud example, which is pretty common. Uh, So, you know, uh, if, if you're doing fraud stuff, you might say like, okay, well, we have bad users that are doing this and that, and we want to automatically block them. And then you'd say, okay. Well, if I want to automatically block bad users, uh, I'm going to use a model to do that potentially. Um, the first thing that usually helps you de-risk this is, can we do this through heuristics? So like, if you look at all your bad users, maybe, you know, they all, I don't know, maybe you you have just one set of attackers and they all have the same IP. So then like, just don't build a model, just ban that IP or good. If there's no good traffic on it. Um. You know you could and that's again you do this through data exploration right you look literally at correlation between you know is bad and, and whatever you know about uh, this example once you've done this you know you can say like oh actually with heuristics uh we have this performance profile and what does performance profile mean here usually you would care about what's our recall for this so like how many of the bad people do we catch and then what's our you know Either precision or like false positive rate, depending on how you look at it. Like basically, what's the impact on good users? And how you trade this off is you'd say like, well, the cost of blocking a good user is this. You know, we lose whatever, like maybe like the the, the, uh, the order amount they ordered, or essentially more because maybe you know they have a higher uh, LTV, they would order again, or You could even say, we also have a reputational risk. You know, let's just, let's sign like five bucks. Every time we block somebody that's good, you know, uh, it's not great for us. People will stop using us. And then the cost of letting a bad user through is that once you have this like kind of metric, you can say, okay, great. So the heuristic performs at this level, it has this much, you know, precision, this much recall. So it like saves us this much money or it's negative, like actually is bad. Um, and then once you have that, then you, you're speaking the same language and then your, your data science team can say, cool. You know, given these metrics that you've told us, like this is, this is what we've we've got. You know, we think this is not good enough to launch a product, or we think it is good enough. And so, all of the work is is in that early kind of like definition delineating, and it's not a science. A lot of it is around making assumptions, right? Because like, especially when you're saying like, what's the cost of blocking a good user? Like, you know, there's some assumptions in there, um, but I think that gets everyone on the same page, and that's one of the main things you can do to de-risk the kind of like product to ML. Uh, Interaction,
0: and in terms of how roles within teams, do you see as perhaps we head into this ML Nirvana? Do you see more specialization? I mean, we have increasingly now we have ML engineers. Do you see other more kind of titles showing up, or do you see consolidation? Maybe we don't need so many specialists. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Do we need twelve different? Have roles on each. I think, as to go back to the compiler engineer analogy, I, I think, as much as it saddens me to say this as an ML engineer, uh, I feel like ML engineers, for example, will will become, you know, uh, more and more software engineers that can use ML libraries, uh, and maybe. Um, software engineers that can use ML libraries and also have a good sense of, of again, like iterating on the data. And so like they you know, they're good at kind of the, um, it would be like, it's more of like a data analyst slash data scientist kind of work. and So I think like, I would imagine that you could probably in the future kind of collapse those roles in, in, in terms of the libraries and the tools they're using, doing a lot of work for them. I still think there's kind of, at least in many companies I've seen uh, a, a bit of, um, a delineation between is your work changing production code or is your work mostly producing kind of analysis that's guiding business decisions and priorities and projects that are tackled. I think that's likely to remain. So at least that one, you know, split feels because they feel like pretty different directions and and, in one direction, you're kind of like informing strategy and in another direction uh, you're driving uh, implementation and they both seem obviously really important. Uh, I think like a lot of the sub delineations between are you like a data engineer, an ML engineer, data science data analyst that sort of stuff like today, maybe people will be furious and be like, those roles are very different, but I think in the future they'll be much more, much closer. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you'll
0: need fewer people to be able to achieve the same result, that kind of thing. I, yeah, I would, I would say that that's likely to happen for sure. One would hope so. <laughs> <Please>.
1: <laughs> I, I love have many, having many colleagues, but yeah, it's, yeah, the trend in technology is is, mm-hmm. is
0: towards needing fewer people to do the same thing over time, right? So I think it'll happen for ML as well. So yeah, we usually end these podcasts with a couple of a uh, couple of questions that you can t- take as as in whatever direction you would you would like. So first off, what would be a, a, a quick win or something practical that someone can do to make their productionizing of models more robust?
1: One thing I'm a really big fan of um, uh, is, is something called shadow. So shadow infrastructure, the essential idea, um, usually it's referred as deploying a model to shadow, is that no matter what you do, uh, and if you say that's not the case for you, you're a liar, uh, there's a there's a difference between kind of the data that you're going to train and evaluate your models offline and what's going to happen once they're actually shipped in production you can work on that difference and you should work on kind of like making your offline online environment as similar as possible, but there's, there always creep up. And even if you, you know, you manage to remove all differences today, your product's going to change, your data pipelines are going to change. So in two months, they'll be different again. Um, so that po- that poses a problem because ideally you would like to be able to do offline work, say your model is good and then just ship it. Oftentimes that's not the case because of said differences. Um, the idea of shadow is, in your production pipeline, when you call your real model, that's doing whatever it's doing, uh, let's take the example of, let's say, classifying support tickets, um, you, you you just write a little bit of code that says, I'm gonna call this main model. Also, I'm gonna call the shadow model. And you call your main model, and you call the shadow model. And then you use the results of your main model, which you know, you're happy with, and then, you save the results of the shadow model per analysis later. And what that gives you is kind of an unbiased data set comparing your current production model to your shadow model. And it does this as at no production impact. So it's, it's kind of like, it's a weaker version of an AB test in terms of the information it gives you, but with, you know, you can ship an absolute garbage model to shadow and it doesn't matter. Um, and that's incredibly useful. And I've, I've, you know, we've used that stripe. I've, I've, Heard from many of, of the people in my network that haven't implemented this that they really loved it because it gives you much more confidence in your deployment ability because you know you, you can just kind of experiment with it you can say like oh I think this model is good I'm going to put it in shadow you know wait a couple of days and then you see and you're like oh it actually this performs great and you can deploy much more confidently so I, I think that that's something that hopefully there should be tooling for in the near future but at least immediately right is is that's great just do it and it's not that much work because you're you're just doing another call to another model and then throwing the results away. Or saving them somewhere, I mean, but not showing them to users.
0: Okay, nice. Yeah, very practical. And what would you be, in terms of the the tooling then, that you were talking about there, what would be one part of putting a model in production that you think should be given more attention, should be better served by toolmakers in this MLOps space? I think it's as much
1: of a, a tooling as maybe a framework problem but sometimes as we talked about earlier tools can define frameworks for you um i wish there was more tooling for kind of that un- encompasses the, the whole model training and model uh, deployment part so what i mean by that is at least initially a lot of the tooling was around hey you've trained this model you know use this tool and it like gives you an api call for this model which is nice but but what i want is not just that again what i want back to We talked about earlier is a tool where let's say while i use this tool i define everything i say like okay like this is the data set, this is how i get it you know like this is whatever the model how i train this how i deploy it and then this whole tool um you know once i do like model the deploy or whatever continuously runs and verifies that it's still working so like again with models the only way that that you kind of know they work is by by building them and and running them you can't just kind of like offline say like yes this workflow will still work and so it just regularly still you know like constructs a new data set a new model transit and i verify it's like yep still working um because i think such a tool if if it gained popularity and people just built their models in this would mean it's kind of like docker for models in a way right it's like reproducible um model generation data generation and training uh and i think there's there's some work towards developing that tool obviously but um i don't think it's there yet
0: yeah yeah definitely a lot of work to to be done by people working on at that end of things Yep. well thank you very much Emmanuel for for, for coming on definitely recommend listeners to to read your book it's not too long and you'll learn a lot yeah thank you again for for coming on yeah thanks for having me Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast and Thanks. Until next time.